the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping. You watch a parent not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit. And you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did what most thinking, caring parents would do. And that is, he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that. I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called. And the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would... I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent because in my house it would be you live underneath my roof, I pay for your bills, and until the age of majority, my rules go. And if you don't behave appropriately, the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jance joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, The Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. And Dr. Jantz, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean, really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because she was texting somebody inappropriately. There's got to be a backstory. Please tell me. Oh, there's got to be. But what is it? It's it's, uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply unbelievable. And uh, the role of this several things that are confused here is uh, we've really uh, probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away. Something else was going on. And the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. Let's talk about a couple of things. First, as a bit of background, and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child 
are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be a a bit of a, a battle between parents. It is, and of course the kids are caught in the middle of it, um, and we know too that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in, in text messaging, and uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? Let's talk what's about your, this because I, I, I've, I've seen I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that you know this child has her her rights and after all it's an invasion of privacy this that and the other thing and I'm thinking to myself really in in 2016 knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the internet behind uh, social media sites everything from uh you know pedophiles to uh, well, you just about name it uh e- even these days we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and and being brought into the sex trade as sex slaves what what thinking logical parent would say oh yeah my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote unquote i mean if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first. That I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18, I, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to um, really are we working on protecting our kids? Um, you know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password. And um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger in mom and dad's closet at a certain time in the evening or you don't have it the next day. Uh, we talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an apps. We make it a, an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is, is age 10, 10 years old. So we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Chance, probably over the weekend, about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to her. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. Yeah. To discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was yeah. apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police, who then, posing as this perp, uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly, like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first uh, generation to be tethered to technology. 
and there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are, and every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds, you know, Facebook is old news, we're off to uh, other things, and um, now I can buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, we have instant live uh, videoing now, and there's some apps that, like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves in the lives of our kids, uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. But the level of vulnerability out there is, is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be, what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy ought to trump your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the hooskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting on said cell phone. I mean, at, at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So split parents here, daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are you can't behave like that, says the daughter. I'm confiscating, confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls the typical 12-year-old conniption fit goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now, that's, that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. 
Um, yes, I, it's more of a question comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh-huh. and he was making the point that uh, it, it, in this very exact uh, topic of cell phones, that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, the, the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right. And you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um, and I'm just glad that the uh, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it, uh, it was appears that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, really... that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of, of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Dr. Jantz, and that is the notion that, you know, we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say, now, don't, don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. So right. then what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion if, you, if, if taking away their privileges is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property? Why do we call them children then? Why don't we just say that they're, you know, miniature adults? That's right. Well, good point. You know, and I think, too, another bigger picture is um, – how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting? We know that um, uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology, and how do we monitor this? What do we do? Um, and how do we set up technology rules for our family and our household, and what's our values there? Um, how do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, this gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. And so we, we send a lot of mis- messages. Are parents uh, underplaying that- the, the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now there's a whole other level, invisible level of communication, connection, uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity, that parents uh, probably, for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received uh, sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I, I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain 
uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity, um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. It can really set you up to have an addictive-type brain and craving more and more. So in addition to some of the obvious things like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, uh, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarella's raising his hand. It happens all okay. the time. And, yeah. and yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap. And, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner one night a week. It's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day, and you, you learn how to – do a board game. That's a board game, not a boring game. Uh, you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face to face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of Twenty, uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch up, and what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case certainly out of Dallas is at the extreme, and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous um manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people. And the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous. I'm not suggesting that it's not great technology. We all enjoy it. Life has gotten a lot easier at many levels, a lot more complicated at many others. But uh, it needs to be a case where parent, you need to be actively engaged and aware. And I like what Dr. Jans suggests. How about a disconnected, turn it off evening for the entire family? Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, a friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the, 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 the you know, who's taking who at the, to soccer practice next Saturday. 
The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen and then we repeat? Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage? It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 3.10 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where... Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness, and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame, in some ways, can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame, in other ways, can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis 3, 10 and following, that that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves, and as a result— Um, have to deal with that damaged view as it relates to even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them, literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us, new book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories we believe about ourselves, as I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? If, for example, if I, if I were to back into a lit stove Without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically? I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families, and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective, that the experience of shame is common, it's normal, uh, we experience it early and often as human beings, actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it, given how it functions in our brain. Uh, but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, then do in our response to it. 
it's not even so much that shame in and of itself and our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what their, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives. And then we tend to spread that, because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions. And so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves, even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it. And the irony about this is that there is that sense when when we um, are aware of our own shame, um, we feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you, you can correct me on that. But, but there's interesting something there because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God, and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same? Well, we certainly do the same, and I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book, um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing. Like, we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, What's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, It doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis and that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion. And the irony now as we see that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. 
both of those things between a man and a woman and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy, require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. When we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when the text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image, that we are made as plural beings. We are made as people who were intended for each other. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 18, when he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. In fact, because we are so vulnerable. It is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves. But it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue, because it, it's ironic that, as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But isn't it interesting how typically our response is that when, when we become aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points point out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that that God died for us while we were yet sinners, understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and and rather than, than allowing shame to to repel us from God, to rather propel us to God? How do we make that happen, though? Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, 
and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one, can ass- one, one can imagine, uh, without of course having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real, embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. 
And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the Scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think it was just suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal-level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, that our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another, and a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles, in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not shame ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, therefore, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships, catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks, that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that, uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damage view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can... Um, bring about not just the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, 
The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.